0: For every area and issue of the human body, there is a health professional who specializes in that particular area, isn't there? We know that. But You see, the body is so complex that there's no such thing as one doctor who truly does it all. There's no way that one doctor can have absolute expertise on every single thing, so you have to have a specialist for every particular area and issue of the body. For instance, there is the podiatrist who specializes in the feet. There's the orthopedic doctor whose focus is the bones. There's the gastrointestinal specialist who focuses on The stomach, cardiologist, work on the heart, hematologist, the blood, radiologist, disease, optometrist, the eyes, neurosurgeons, the brain, you get the point. And you see, each of these areas are so multifaceted, so complex, that there's just too much for any one person to master. There's no such thing as a medical renaissance man. A do-it-all doctor who has complete mastery over every single area and part of the body. That cannot happen. And yet be that as it may. Although that does not exist in the medical world, that does exist in the spiritual world. There is a renaissance man of eternal life. A do it all savior who in and by himself provides the remedy for every single dilemma caused by sin, and the dilemmas caused by sin are numerous and multifaceted. See, there is the power of sin, there is the penalty for sin, there is the wrath for sin, the guilt of sin the deception of sin there is the ongoing presence of sin for which we need the power of christ to overcome because of sin we needed regeneration to be born again we needed forgiveness and the cancellation of our infinitely long criminal record We needed justification, the imputation of the righteousness of someone else in our place. We needed adoption. We needed reconciliation. We needed a substitute to stand in our place and take the wrath that we deserve for the sins that we committed. We needed a high priest. Someone who could stand in our place and represent us to the Father. And you see, rather than giving us multiple saviors who specialize in only one of those areas, God instead has given us one savior, sovereign and supreme. A savior who does it all. God has given us a renaissance man of eternal life who supplies in and by himself the solution for every remedy caused by sin. Don't you see, Christ plus nothing equals everything we need for life and death and salvation and eternity. And that do-it-all Savior who has done it all for sinners like us is exactly what John reveals in the text this morning. And you have to understand that in a very real sense, the letter of 1 John is ultimately all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning John puts him on display as a renaissance man of eternal life. And the reason why he does is because you know there were problems in the churches to whom John was writing. Something was rotten in the churches of Asia Minor where John had a ministry. See, John gets wind of this clever new-agey cult group that had infiltrated the churches over whom John was responsible. And this group caused real confusion over the nature, over the doctrine of salvation. And these con men had so successfully raised doubts about the apostles' teaching that these people began to wonder, do I really have the truth? Have I misunderstood what the Bible says about salvation? Do I really, truly have eternal life or do I not? Because according to these teachers, I don't. But according to the apostles, I do. Who am I supposed to believe? And so John puts pen to paper. And he crafts this poetic theological masterpiece designed to do one ultimate thing in their lives. Namely, grant them glad hearted assurance and joy that if they belong to christ by faith they do have eternal life you have it it's yours it is certain it is guaranteed it's paid for it's in the books and oh by the way here's all the evidence in your life of what it looks like when you do have eternal life That's what John is doing in this letter, giving us all the tangible evidence of what it looks like when we have eternal life. But you see, the problem, the problem with sin, however, is that it makes living the Christian life kind of tricky, doesn't it? Because we've got the sin of the past, and we've got the sin of the present. There's the sins of the past, and they are nearly infinite in number. And there are the sins of the present that we still sadly commit. And so on that basis, how can we be sure that we really truly have eternal life? There's all that guilt for the sins of the past. There's all that shame for the sin of the present. How can we actually know for sure that we truly have eternal life? How can we know? And therein is exactly where the Renaissance man of eternal life comes who in himself provided the payment for the sins of the past, and who by himself supplies the solution for the sins of the present. A do-it-all Savior who has done it all to save ruined sinners like us. And so here we go. Two verses this morning, and only two verses. And yet contained in those two verses could just be the most important realities you've ever heard about your salvation here's where we're going this morning this morning i want you to see two ministries of christ two ministries of christ that provide everything we need for the guilt of the past and the sin of the present that's where we're going Two ministries of Christ that provide everything we need for the guilt of the past and the sin of the present. And the first ministry of Christ is this. Number one, He is our righteous advocate with the Father. He is our righteous advocate with the Father. Look what John says in verses 1 and 2. John says, my little children. These things I am writing to you so that you would not sin. And yet if anyone should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And there it is. Embedded in just those two verses are some of the things, some of the things that makes Christ an all-sufficient Savior of infinite worth. But did you notice there in verse 1, John gives the purpose of the letter? In other words, John gives one of the many reasons why he wrote this letter and the reason why he did, it is nothing short of staggering. Look at verse 1. My little children, he says, these things I am writing to you so that you would not sin. Notice that he calls them my little children. Think about that. John just called a bunch of adults little children. But in so doing, he was not being condescending or arrogant. He was being caring and affectionate. John speaks this way not only because he's in his 90s and is probably older than everybody in these churches, but because he is a father in the faith. Maybe the father Of their faith. John speaks with the tender affection of a father for his children because he loves these people. This whole letter drips with the blood of urgent concern. This, This letter is stained with the tears from a father's heart. But again, notice did you hear the reason why John wrote this letter? He wrote this letter so that they and we would not sin, that we would be holy that we would never knowingly tolerate even one single sin in our lives. That's what he means. Because that's the biblical standard for holiness that we would not sin. And that's not only really discouraging, that's impossible. It's impossible. Really, John? Not sin? Like like not sin not ever? That's crazy. It's not. It's not crazy. That is the biblical standard for authentic holiness. Not sinning is the standard. Zero tolerance policy is the bar. And yet overwhelming, though this verse may be to us, it is actually filled with unbelievable hope and grace for the Christian life. Did you see it? Look at the text from another angle. My little children, these things I am writing to you. So that you would not sin. Did you feel the hope there? Did you feel the grace embedded in those words? These things that I am writing to you here are so that you would not sin. Meaning, the words contained in this letter are able to keep you from sin. That's what he means. That there is enough supernatural firepower and insight contained even in just this one letter to overcome all temptation and sin. That even if you only had the letter of 1 John and nothing else in the Bible, that there is enough power and insight to put all sin and temptation to death. That is his claim. That is the power of the scriptures. That is what the word of God is designed to do. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that something like what John is describing is even possible? And that it's contained in this letter? Do you believe that what is contained in just the letter of 1 John is able to help you put all sin and temptation to death, that there is enough supernatural firepower there? Do you believe that? Because that's his claim. And the real question is, do you even want that? Do you want to not sin? Or are you okay with your current ratio? Are there some sins in your life that you are afraid to lose because of the pleasure that they bring? And thus what John describes here not only sounds impossible, but even undesirable. The question is, do you, are you tolerating any sin or darkness in your life right now as we speak? If so, my question is, why? What does it gain you? What does it profit you? Why are you so unwilling to part with it? What would you be missing if you didn't have that tolerated secret sin What is lacking about Christ that you feel needs to be compensated by the pleasure provided by that sin? Because don't you see, in Christ, real life change is possible. Victory over the most stubborn sins that never seem to go away is available to you in the sacred text. And in particular, in the first letter of the Apostle of John. And so I challenge you, give the next three months of your life to this letter. Read it every single day. Read it slow. Fight to understand what he is saying. Get it absorbed into your very blood. Learn to think John's thoughts as your own. Memorize the entire letter. And before you know it, your heart will begin to change. But nevertheless, the standard remains the same. You must not sin. Not sin, not ever. That's the only acceptable standard in the Christian life, which creates a massive problem for us, doesn't it? Because the problem is, we do sin. Multiple times an hour, probably. We sin more than we think we do, and sometimes in really deliberate and egregious ways. The question is, what are we supposed to do? how are we as sinners supposed to maintain fellowship with the living God? How can unclean sinners like us approach the white, hot holiness of God and not be incinerated? Because I'll just tell you, we are far too casual with sin. We are far too flippant with iniquity. We tend to treat sin like it's no big deal, and yet like any other relationship. Sin separates and hinders us from the full experience and enjoyment of the pleasures of God. So what are we supposed to do? And maybe you think, ah, Jared, you forgot. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to which I say, exactly, exactly. However, the question is, Do you think that forgiveness is just automatic? Like automated emails when you make an online payment? Do you suppose that God's forgiveness is really so mechanical and impersonal, a mere shrug of the shoulders, and that there isn't some transaction taking place in heaven right this moment that guarantees and assures you of your forgiveness? Isn't isn't that exactly why the book of Leviticus was written to the people of Israel? Doesn't the book of Leviticus answer so many questions for those people? How can a God whose holiness is more dangerous than radiation live in the midst of a people and have a relationship with them without destroying them? What was the answer? What was the answer? Priests made sacrifices and they entered into the nuclear reactor of the sanctuary and intervened for the people. That's how that's how unclean sinners could obtain forgiveness from the living God, and that is exactly what John describes. Look at verse 1. My little children, these things I am writing to you so that you would not sin. And yet, if anyone should sin... We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. There it is. That's how we know that we're always forgiven. That's how access to the Father is always restored and that there is no guilt for the present. Because John says, although we should never ever sin in the event that we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. That's the ministry of Christ for the sins of the present. But the question is, what does that even mean? Well, what does an advocate even do? And what does it mean that Jesus Christ is ours? Well, first things first, notice the present tense of the verb. Notice, we have an advocate. Do have, currently. Always, unceasingly, right now, have an advocate. Jesus Christ is always just there with the Father. But the question is, what is he doing? What is the role of an advocate? Well, interestingly, that word was used in ancient Greek legal documents to describe one who intercedes on behalf of another. Like a defense attorney who pleads the case of the guilty. You see, an advocate is someone who represents two opposing parties and who provides the perfect solution and settlement that satisfies both party, parties. This is one who mediates. This is one who intervenes. This is someone who reconciles two parties together, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ is and does. And look where John says that Jesus Christ is even at this moment. Where is he? John says that Christ is right now, pros tan patera. He is with the Father. Not in some other galaxy or universe somewhere, but He is there, always presently, right now, with the Father in Trinitarian proximity and fellowship. Don't you see? This is how forgiveness works, this is how it operates. We confess our sins and God is righteous and faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness precisely because we have an advocate with the Father. You're forgiven, not just because God says you are, but because when you confess your sin, the Son actively intercedes on your behalf and pleads your case in your place. I died for them, Father. I died for that. Accept my payment on their behalf, Father. You chose them. I died for them. Now apply the proceeds of my death to their account, Father. And every single time, the Father joyfully and exuberantly accepts the advocacy of His Son. Forgiven. Cleansed. Reconciled righteous, which has profound implications, doesn't it? I mean, this this has profound implications for the Christian life that affect and shape even our view of God himself. In fact, there are three implications in our lives of the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Three implications. Number one, we are forgiven by the Father. Listen very carefully. We are forgiven by the Father, not when we punish ourselves for things that we have done, or when we kick enough bad habits to make us more acceptable before God, but we are forgiven because we have an advocate with the Father. You know, when I graduated high school and I first started college, I was not a believer And I think for that reason, I was not motivated, super motivated to excel academically. In fact, I couldn't excel academically because I was undisciplined. I was lazy. I was a bad thinker. I had no study skills. I had no diligence, no self-discipline at all. And to be totally honest, I was too dumb to think logically or rigorously. And twice, I was put on academic probation. Twice, academic probation. I was marred in the eyes of the administration And one more D or F, and I would be kicked out of that college forever. Why? Because my academic pursuits were a waste of everybody's time. And although there is academic probation at Spokane Falls Community College, there is no salvation probation in the kingdom of God. Why? Because God doesn't care about sin? He just sweeps it under the rug like it's no big deal. No, he profoundly does care and it does matter. But there is no probation precisely because Jesus Christ is always there with the Father pleading the case for our innocence and the only evidence he cites for our innocence is his own death in our place. Number two. The high priestly ministry of Christ before the Father is our deepest assurance that if we are saved, we stay saved. Because we, this is so massive for us, because we love that phrase, once saved, always saved, to describe our eternal security, don't we? And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. To be saved is always to be saved. But the problem is that phrase doesn't go nearly far enough. It skips that whole part in the middle that says that our eternal security is get this, bound up in the intercessory ministry of Christ before the Father that is happening right now even as we speak. You're not just saved because God says you're saved. You're saved and you stay saved because Christ right now and always intercedes on your behalf before the Father which means our salvation is as safe and secure as the unbreakable bond between the Father and the Son. Number three number three. Well, let me say this first. Some of you, I know, you fidget and squirm over your souls, don't you? You tremble and you worry and you wonder if God might hold past or present sin against you. And you're never quite sure where you stand with God. Where am I? I know I believe, but, but am I forgiven? It, it, did I go too far? Did I take it too far? What, what, if he, what if he changes his mind? And I just want you to know that this text right here settles the issue. It settles the issue. If you are in Christ, and you have truly fled to Him for refuge, and you trust Him as the Lamb of God slain for your soul, you need to know the Father is not angry with you. There's no more wrath left to bear. There's no more guilt left to atone. Why? Because you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews 7.25 says that Christ always lives to make intercession for us, which means we are always safe and secure in the hands of Jesus Christ. Implication three. Implication three. Logic would tell you, wouldn't it? That if this is true, if this is true about what Christ does, then that means that means that people will begin to think that they can live however they want, right? Because, hey, I can do whatever I want. I've got immunity. I've got a defense attorney, and therefore I can do whatever I want and never get in trouble. You would think this would lead to that, but I assure you the opposite is the case. Instead, rather than promote laziness or license to sin, the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ actually produces profound holiness in our lives. How? Because what this does, understand this, what this does is give us the freedom and strength to fight our sin, knowing that even if we fail, we never need to earn back the Father's love with our performance. We never need to bargain with God about the guilt, to cancel the guilt, because that's precisely the job of the Renaissance man who pleads the case for our innocence using his death alone as the evidence for our innocence. And every single time the Father replies with infinite joy, payment accepted. That's the ministry of Christ for sinners like us, and there is no greater news than that. But did you notice, did you notice the minor but at the same time major detail in the text? What does John call our advocate? He says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ. Do do you know what you are doing when you say the title Jesus Christ? You're making a theological statement is what you're doing. Because notice, not just Jesus Not only Christ, but Jesus and Christ. Jesus, his name. Christ, his title. Both of them exploding with significance. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, the the coming redeemer and king. Put it all together. What you have is a do-it-all savior who is none other than God himself. And yet the question is, why is it exactly that Christ is such a perfect mediator? What is it about him exactly that the Father always listens to his plea on our behalf? Because if you need a lawyer to represent you, you don't want some shady, slimy, dirtbag of questionable character. Rather, you want someone whose moral power and excellence is so superb that they win over the heart of the judge. In other words, you want an advocate who is righteous, That's exactly what John says. Look at the text. My children, I'm writing these things to you so that you would never sin, ever. But even if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, here it is, the righteous one. He is righteous. That is what makes him the perfect advocate on our behalf, because think about it. If Christ had also sinned against the Father, how could he vouch for us? If he were a criminal like us, how could he be our defense attorney? If he was under the wrath of God for his own sin, he he would need salvation just like us. He would need grace just like us. He would be guilty and equally in need of salvation. He would also need an advocate for himself. But you see, we have before the Father a high priest who is as righteous as the Father himself. Because you remember, Chapter 1, verse 9 If we confess our sins, God is righteous to forgive us. And here we have the righteous one before the righteous one pleading the case for unrighteous people. The only Mediator, an advocate to which the Father will listen is one who is as righteous as Himself. And therefore, that means that He alone is qualified to plead the case for the souls of men, which means we are secure. So don't you see? We should weep and mourn over our sin. We should do that. When we sin, we should be crushed. That we were so willing to exchange the glory of God for such paltry pleasures. That we were willing to trade God for the discount delights and the thrift store thrills of the pleasures of sin. But you see, what that sin did not do was alter our status before God. That sin did nothing to alter our status before God as fully accepted, beloved sons and daughters of the living God. Why? Because our acceptance with God is 100% based on the righteous intercession of Jesus Christ who pleads our case day and night. So, my question for you is do you have an advocate with the Father? Do you have this? which means I'm asking have you yielded to Jesus Christ. Because in a court of law you can represent yourself if you want. You can act as your own lawyer if you want to do that. If you so choose that is within your legal limits to do so. But I just want you to know in the supreme court of the sovereign king you don't we don't have the credibility to represent ourselves. We do not have the credentials of the moral qualifications to plead our own case on our own behalf, on our own. There is only wrath and judgment. And so the only option for you this morning is to yield in thirsty submission to Jesus Christ, who is our substitute on the one hand, but who is our advocate on the other. And that's the ministry of Christ. Which brings us to the second Ministry of Christ. Number two, He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Because that's the thing about the Renaissance man. That's the thing about him, is that he not only supplies the solution for the sins of the present, but he also, get this now, he provided with his death The solution for the problem posed by the sins of the past. Look at verse 2. John says you should never sin. You should never sin ever. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And here it is. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. But also for those of the whole world. And there it is, did did you see it? The ministry of Christ for sinners like us. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Meaning what? Meaning what? What does that word propitiation even mean? To which I reply, not yet. Not yet we are not yet ready to hear about propitiation until or unless we hear about the infinite problem that brought about the need for propitiation. And the problem is, God is angry. We were born as objects of God's mercy, to be sure. But at the exact same time we were all born as objects of his wrath. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And it is a just and furious anger. John 3:36 says that the anger of God hangs over the wicked like a storm cloud. Romans 1:18 says that the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 2.5 says that the unrighteous are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. And Revelation 14.11 says that the smoke of those in the lake of fire will forever be pluming into the air forever and ever and ever, and that they have no rest day or night. My point is, God is a problem for us. The wrath of God is a problem for us. And for that, there is no solution or escape. Except for one. Except for one. And now we're ready to hear about the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Because you understand, don't you, that God just can't de facto forgive sinners. He can't just sweep sin under the rug and turn the other way and pretend like it didn't happen. God can't do that. There has to be a transaction. There has to be a punishment. The nature of what sin is, and the nature of God's righteousness, demands that the most, uh, that the greatest outra- outrage in the universe, namely sin, be punished in full. But you see, but you see that word propitiation means that God made a way where sinners don't have to bear that punishment. God made a way to find sinners, not. Guilty without dropping the charges. And how he did that was by providing a substitute to stand in the place of sinners like us and execute his furious, righteous wrath on that substitute. And there you see we get to the heart of propitiation. Because what that word means is a wrath bearing sacrifice. Understand this it is a wrath bearing sacrifice that appeases and satisfies the infinite anger of God. But you see, the thing about propitiation is that it doesn't merely settle the score, it doesn't just bring the account to zero. Or merely cancel a debt. No, propitiation is to reconcile two people together. Propitiation reconciles guilty sinners to God as the treasure of their soul. Because you know that when the sun comes out, kids love to take a magnifying glass and they love to fry ants on the pavement, don't they? And they position the magnifying glass in such a way that the light of the sun is concentrated onto a single beam of light and they burn the victim until there is no more left to burn. And they do that out of cruelty and bloodthirsty delight of seeing things burn, don't they? But you see, the father punished his own son out of infinite love and mercy. 2,000 years ago, the white Hot beam of God's divine fury was concentrated upon a single object outside Jerusalem, namely on a cross upon which hung the Son of God. And the Father unleashed His wrath until there was no more wrath for the elect left to bear. And when it was over, Jesus Christ declared, It is finished! And He bowed His head and He said no more. Behold the glory of the Renaissance man. Behold his glory this morning. The do-it-all Savior who is both the Lamb offered for sin and the priest making the sacrifice. This is practical. This, This propitiation is profoundly practical for our lives. How so? How about I give you three, three powerful and practical implications of propitiation for our lives. Number one, Propitiation is practical and powerful because it most forcefully and beautifully displays the glory of the cross. It most beautifully and powerfully displays the glory of the cross. This is the ultimate two birds, one stone in the universe. The wrath of God had to be appeased. Sin had to be punished. Sinners needed salvation. What are we supposed to do? Who could stand in the place of wrath-deserving rebels and in one shot, in one glorious transaction, simultaneously satisfy the justice of God on the one hand and rescue sinners all at the same time? There is but one answer to that question, and it is the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Number two, propitiation is practical and powerful Because it perfectly displays for us the beautiful complexity of the character of God. It perfectly displays for us the beautiful character of the complexity of God. You see, God was angry with sinners and even, in a sense, hated sinners. And yet, in the wonderfully complex, unfathomably intricate mind of God he loved sinners also he loved them Only God could feel the full force of His wrath against sinners and the full power of His love for sinners because 1 John 4.10 tells us that it was precisely the love of God that sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God sent the Son to bear the wrath for sinners like us which means propitiation flows out of the infinite fountain of the love and affection of God. Number three. Propitiation is practical and powerful because get this, it frees us, it frees us from the vicious cycle of thinking that we have to appease God's wrath with good works after we sin. It frees us from that. You know that technique where we try to self-atone for our sins and try to prove to God that we're worthy of eternal life as if that were even possible? It's not. It's not possible. And that was never Ever the point. As if we're trying to pre- prevent God from getting buyer's regret from saving us. That's, that was never the point. The point is if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, he has already guzzled the ocean sized goblet of the anger of God and he drank it completely dry. And sinning again doesn't refill the ocean. And what that does is free us. It frees us. Not to sin, but to fight our sin, knowing that even if we fail, we do not have to appease the wrath of God because that was already done by the Renaissance man, Jesus Christ. My question is, do you trust this? Do you love this? Do you make the ministry of Christ the focus of your daily contemplations? Do you recite to your own soul the redemptive achievements of Jesus Christ? Because I'll just have you know this right here is the secret to the darkness of depression. This is the power that overcomes temptation and sin. This is what gives us lion hearted courage to proclaim the gospel. This is what empowers us to love like Christ in marriage and to love our children with supernatural affection. Namely, when we see and savor the saving triumphs of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is clear. The more glory you see of who Christ is, the more you will be changed into his likeness. So here's the challenge. I'm dead serious. Here's the challenge. You memorize 1 John 2, 1 and 2. You just memorize it. And other passages exactly like it Isaiah 53, Romans 5, 6 through 11, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 3, 4 through 7. And all of Hebrews 10. You get it absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul. Because the more glory you see of who Christ is, the more your life will begin to change. But here's the question. We're close. We're close here. The question is, if the richest man in the world who also loved art, wanted to show off the glory of his wealth, what would he do? I'll tell you what he'd do. He would buy whatever piece of art he wanted to from anywhere in the world. That's exactly what John says Christ did. Look at the text. Look at verse 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous... And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. You see it? The propitiating power of Jesus Christ was not limited only to those to whom John was writing, but rather he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Which means what exactly? What does that mean that he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Because I'll just tell you, there is debate about what this text means. And to be totally honest with you, it's kind of heated. There are basically two opposing views of what this means. One view says that Christ bore the wrath for every single individual person in history without exception. That's view one. View two is that Christ bore the wrath in particular for the elect those chosen by the Father from every nation and given to the Son, Christ bore the wrath in particular for them. So those are your options. Christ died for every single individual without exception or Christ died in particular for the elect scattered throughout the whole world. Those are your options and I believe view number two is the right option. I believe view number two is the right option. That Christ bore the wrath, actually bore the wrath In particular, for those chosen by the Father from every nation in the world. To which you say, prove it, Jared. Because the text does say, he's the propitiation for the sins of the world. And the word elect does not appear in the text. Right, right. However, the thing we have to get to the bottom of in the text is that word, world. There's other issues too. There's like three or four really significant issues that we would have to have a conversation about. We only have time for one. The thing we have to get to the bottom of is the use of that word world because John uses that word in this letter a whopping 23 times in this letter and never one time in the letter does that word ever mean every individual person without exception. It never means that in 1 John. If it did, 1 John 2.2 2 would be the only place. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says that when Christ came into the world, the world did not know him. The world did not know Christ. Meaning, not that nobody knew him. It's not that nobody, it's not that every single individual person in the world did not know him, but the world generally as a whole. Chapter 3.13. John says, "The world hates you," meaning not every single individual person without exception hates you, but the world generally as a whole." Chapter five, verse nine, for chapter five, verse 19. John actually uses the phrase, "The whole world." The whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And what he meant was not every single individual without exception but the world generally as a whole. So I believe that when John says world, he means all the nations of the world without distinction. Not every single individual person without exception, but all the nations in the world without distinction. Christ died for the world in the sense that he bore the wrath, in particular for a specific subset of people scattered throughout the nation of the nations of the world, and by that I mean the elect. And this is everywhere in the New Testament. This is everywhere. Consider the language of John's own gospel. If you have notes, listen to John chapter 11. Listen very carefully for the distinction that Christ makes. It says, Jesus was about to die for the nation, i.e. of Israel. He was about to die for the nation of Israel. And not for the nation only, but only. Also, that he would gather together into one the children of God scattered abroad. You hear the distinction that he makes there, not just for the nation, but for all the children of God scattered abroad. And notice the text doesn't say he's going to die for the whole world, rather, he is dying for a specific subset of people in the world called the children of God. John's making distinctions. John 17. Christ's prayer to the Father, hours before he got arrested. This is from verse 6, 9, and 20. He says, I revealed your name to the men who you gave to me out of the world. Notice, I'm revealing your name to those who you gave to me out of the world. Not to the world, to those who you gave to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. I am praying for them, verse 9. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given to me. Hear the distinction? Because they are yours. I am not praying for these only, notice, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you hear his language? I'm not praying for the world, Father. I'm I'm not praying for them but I'm praying in particular for those whom you have given to me. And these in particular, who are they? Who are they? Who are they for those for whom Christ has died? Revelation 5.9 gives the answer. Notice the distinction being made in the text here. It's a hymn sang to Christ. Worthy are you to take the book and open its seals for you were slain. And you ransomed with your blood, notice, some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Notice very carefully. It doesn't say he ransomed every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, but he ransomed some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And that, I believe, is the sense that John means in 1 John 2.2. 2. Who did he ransom? Who are these people? Revelation thirteen eight, I believe seals the deal. I believe it seals the deal because there we see a book called the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And if you look at the verse before that, we clearly see that before the foundation of the world written in that book were the names of some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, which means the particular names in that book were the ones for whom the Lamb was slain. So when John says that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, I believe he means those chosen by the Father in every nation of the world. Now, if you think there needs to be more discussion about that, you're right. If you think there are questions that still need to be answered about that, you're totally right. If you think this deserves more explanation, you're right. But at the end of the day, even if you take the other view, you know what we agree on? We agree on the most essential aspect of this whole thing, which is The propitiating death of Jesus Christ is alone, alone how ruined sinners can be saved from eternal woe and despair, right? So what's John's point here? Is it to be controversial? No, it's to be pastoral. He has a very practical and pastoral reason for why he made the comment that he did, and his point is this. His point is the death of Christ is the foundation of our assurance, agreed? That the sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing death of Christ, that we are banking everything on that, are we not? But you see, the point is, the power of His death does not dilute over time. The saving power of His death doesn't get spread thin the more the gospel spreads to the nations. Rather, the wrath-bearing power of the death of Christ paid in full the souls of everyone the Father chose and gave to His Son. They're paid for. Christ already bought those people. And so all we've got to do is go out there and find them by indiscriminately proclaiming the gospel To everyone. And speaking of proclamation of the gospel, that leads me to one final charge, and I close with this. And the question is do you see them? Do you see them in your neighborhoods, at your jobs, on your campuses, in your workplaces? even in your own families, do you see them? The souls of the perishing. Do you hear the screams of the damned? My question is, who in your life right now needs to hear the gospel from you? Who is it? Because right now you need to pray. You need to pray for unblind eyes. You need to ask for undeaf ears. You need to ask the Lord right now for lion hearted courage to proclaim the most beautiful and shareable message in the universe because it's painful though it may be to hear, we make time for what we value. We speak the most about what we love the most. And so this week, speak the most about the Lord Jesus Christ the Renaissance man, the do-it-all Savior who has done it all to save sinners like us from eternal woe and despair because guilty, vile, and helpless we, the spotless Lamb of God, was He. Full atonement can it be! Hallelujah! What a Savior. Oh, Renaissance man, we give you thanks this morning because Christ, you are the Lamb of God and the Son of God and the King of Israel and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the Messiah. You are the great Redeemer. You are the serpent crusher. You are the root and offspring of David. You are the bright morning star. You are all these things and all of these things reveal to you. Reveal to us who you are. You are the all-sufficient Savior who you supplied in and by yourself every remedy for the dilemma caused by sin. Help us to trust you, Christ. Help us to see that. Help us to savor your glory. Help us to savor and enjoy who you are and what you have done and in so doing, in so seeing, as we see, as we savor, savor, that you would use that to transform our lives, to transform our church, our thought lives, our desires, our habits, patterns, tendencies. Help us, O Christ. Help us fulfill, fulfill in us what Christ prayed in John 17, Father, when he, when Christ prayed that the very love that you have for him would be in us, that we would love him with the very love that you have for him and thus live a life that puts you on display. We thank you so much for your word and for this time together in Christ's name. Amen.